Hi, I'm Len App from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing special guest Mark Coker. Based in Los Gatos, California, Mark is an entrepreneur and investor with a background in public relations and the founder of Smashwords, the biggest distributor of indie ebooks in the world, both through its own bookstore and through numerous, ser- numerous services, including Apple, Kobo, Overdrive, and more. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark Coker and check out Smashwords at smashwords.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Mark's background and career, professional interests, the history of Smashwords and where it might be headed in the next few years, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about some of the hot topics being discussed in the book publishing industry as we head into a new decade. So thank you, Mark, for being on the Front Matter podcast. My pleasure, Len. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in technology and startups and and PR. Oh, boy. Well, um, I grew up here in Los Gatos, California. Um, actually grew up across the street from where I live now. <clears throat> um, you know, my dad worked uh, in technology, though I didn't really realize it was technology, but he worked at IBM. Um, and he was an inventor at IBM. One of his big inventions was the uh, magnetic credit card strip that's on the back of your credit card. Oh, wow. So he and a team of people at IBM invented that. Um, and, you know, I, I've been entrepreneurial ever since childhood. Um, you know, I was selling my chicken's eggs door to door, probably by the age of six or seven. Um, always, always been interested in entrepreneurial ventures. I, I never, I never really imagined myself um, entering a career in technology um, I was always interested in building things, making things. I always kind of imagined, you know, something with manufacturing, something that would involve my hands. Um, never imagined that it would be uh, in publishing. But, um, you know, so basically my story is grew up here in Los Gatos, went to college at UC Berkeley, um, majored in business. Uh, graduated with a degree in, in marketing. Um, while I was at Berkeley, still working out of my dorm room, actually at, at Berkeley, they were co-ops. Um, I started working for my father. Uh, my father had quit IBM and started a, uh, a software startup, an email software startup. And uh, on a whim, he printed up business cards for me that said, Mark Coker, Vice President of Marketing and Sales. And that was really exciting for me. I'd always dreamed of running my own company. I never thought it would be in software because I didn't consider myself a technology person. But, um, you know, I, I leapt at the chance to work with him. Um, and I quickly learned that as VP of marketing and sales, I had a zero dollar marketing budget. So my job was to make the phone ring so that we could sell our software. And um, since I didn't have any any marketing budget, um, I thought, well, maybe I should explore, you know, how do we get free press coverage? So I started researching the different computer trade magazines and PC magazine and magazines like that, started contacting the reporters and saying, hey, would you like to review our software? Would you like to write a story about us? And um, I remember calling a reporter once who was incredibly friendly and, and spent much more time with me than he should have. And he said, well, that sounds interesting. Why don't you send me a press kit? And I said, well, what's a press kit? And he said, well, it'll have data sheets and a press release in it. Said, well, what's a press release? 
I mean, I was asking them these really basic questions because I didn't know, and these weren't things that they taught us at the business school at UC Berkeley. Um, but just, you know, with his feedback and and self-study, I, I learned how to write a press release and how to work with reporters and how to get press coverage, free press coverage, free national and international press coverage. And so that's, that's what I was doing uh, for working. Uh, so I did that you know, while I was still going to school uh, in the business school. I almost dropped out of UC Berkeley. I was so excited to be working for my father. Um, and, but thankfully, I stuck it out and graduated. Um, and then I went to work for him. But it was a true garage startup. We worked out of the garage, um, worked with him for about three years. Um, but he didn't have any money. Um, the company always was fairly small. And when I shared ideas with him for how we could grow the company, um, he said, well, we don't want to do that. We'd have to hire people. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, I love my dad and he's brilliant and I credit him with, um, so much of my passion for entrepreneurship, but it became clear to me that, you know, we had different visions for where we were going to take this company together. Um, so I, I left. I left um, his company, which was called Coker Electronics, and that was right right before um, the first Persian Gulf War. It was during a recession, and um, really difficult to find any jobs. And um, you know, with my odd job doing PR for my dad, I, I wasn't really sure you know what I could get a job in. Um, so I got a temporary job at IBM working in manufacturing and I was building mainframe hard disk drives with my hands and it was so much fun and, um, it was fascinating to me to, to, to be in a manufacturing operation and, and thinking about, you know, process and how to make things more efficient and how to improve the quality of the product. That was all fascinating to me, um, also, during that time, I had um, applied to graduate school to go to business school um, to get an MBA because my degree at Berkeley was an undergrad. Um, and so while I was there working at IBM, I found out that I got accepted to um, to Carnegie Mellon for their business school. They had an entrepreneurship program that looked really interesting to me. But I was having so much fun at IBM, I decided to defer that and continue working at IBM. And then about a month after that, IBM laid me off. So there, there I was in the middle of the recession, no job, and uh, wasn't really sure what I could do. Uh, I just knew that I was interested in business. So I decided to start applying to PR agencies. And I was lucky enough to um, get a job, an entry-level job, at one of Silicon Valley's largest PR agencies at the time. And that's how I fell into PR. And as it turned out, my first one of my first clients was a storage company. So who knew that my experience building mainframe hard disk drives would apply to, um, you know, PR. So uh, PR was a lot of fun. Uh, I did well at it. And after about a year and a half at that agency, I decided to leave and start my own agency. And, you know, one of my first clients was a storage company. And my second client was a company called McAfee Associates, the antivirus company. Yeah, if I, if I could just interject for a moment here. Thank you for sharing this great story. It's, it's just fascinating. I didn't know a lot of these details. Uh, but one thing I should mention is uh, the sort of moment in history at which you chose 
to go into PR for yourself was the right in Silicon Valley was at the time of the explosion of the World Wide Web. Um, so when, when you were right. talking about magazines and, and contacting reporters before they were in print and the, the reporters were being called on the telephone, uh, I imagine, um, and finding out what a press release was wasn't as simple as going onto a search engine and going, what's a press release? Uh, because there were no search right. engines. Um, and so, but there you there you were with all this sort of like pre-Cambrian explosion kind of experience. Yes. But like right in the right place at the right time. And then, and for those who might not know, you know, antivirus software was a really important thing at the time. I mean, it's, of course, it's important for a lot of people now, but at the time in particular, people were often afraid of their computers. They were really, really afraid of going online sometimes. And, you know, the kind of as dangerous as things can be online now, you can only imagine what things were like 27 years ago if you tried going on the World Wide Web. Yeah, well, when I first started working with McAfee, um, it was 1992. And um, McAfee had just gone public. They were the first shareware company to go public. And their founder, John McAfee, was, um, you know, I think he was brilliant, um, but he's also kind of crazy. Um, but he had these he's, he had these ideas that people thought were crazy. Like I remember sitting in on an, inter, an interview with him with the magazine InfoWorld, and he was telling the reporter how he viewed his company as like an apple tree, and the software was the fruit of his tree. And he didn't care if people stole his software because he would just grow more. He had this crazy idea that he was just going to give his software away for free and let people pay him on the honor system if they felt like paying him. And the model was incredibly successful for them. Um, it, it, all of their software was distributed online, electronically, um, over bulletin boards before even there was the internet. And they didn't even have a sales team. They just had a bank of fax machines that were spitting out purchase orders like 24 hours a day. And, you know, when I first started working with them, they were like a $12 million company. Um, when I stopped working with them, they were like a $300 million company. Um, but it was a really interesting time. And we would call reporters and, you know, introduce, want try to introduce them to, um, antivirus software and to McAfee associates. And I remember, I remember a reporter at PC magazine, telling me, oh, I don't think viruses are real. I think you guys are just a bunch of hype. Turned out that they were real, and they were more real than anyone ever expected. Um, but the, the McAfee experience for me was, was really important. There would be no Smashwords today if it wasn't for McAfee, because McAfee pioneered many of um, the concepts that we kind of take for granted today, like um, shareware, like uh, freemium, um, giving things away so that you can make more money, uh, uh, electronic software distribution. Um, so selling things outside of a box and out of a package. Um, you know, when I first started working with McAfee, John McAfee was adamant that his software would never be put in a box. That changed in later years when new management came in. Um, but it was it was an amazing experience uh, doing PR. You know, there I was, a 20-something-year-old kid, and when you're doing PR, um, you're working with the CEOs and the VPs of marketing of these really large companies, uh, you know, large publicly traded companies and, and really cool startups. Um, and it was just 
so amazing to be exposed to these so many different ways of marketing, uh, so many different um, views on marketing, so many brilliant minds. And, and I was just a sponge. It, it was just an amazing experience for me. Yeah. And you've, you've had experience multiple times with, you know, not only with small startups, but with actually being there as they grew. So you said you were there with, for, with McAfee from, I think you said 12 million to about 300 million, but you've also, there was another company you were involved with a little bit later called Right Now. Oh yeah. Which, uh, grew from, you said, uh, Greg Gianforte's bedroom to the 300 plus employee uh, company that was, I'm just reading from your LinkedIn bio here, which is a, yeah. a SaaS CRM company. But this was early, early on in the days of that kind of thing. And this was like 1998 to 2001. Yeah. So, um, so Greg Gianforte uh, was the former founder and CEO of a company called Brightwork Development, which McAfee acquired for about $10 million. So it was a small acquisition. Um and he was one of the very first people I was working with when I started my new agency. And um, it was it was great fun working with him, another really smart, brilliant guy. And then when he left McAfee to start uh, Right Now Technologies out of his bedroom, um, he contacted me and, um, you know, I agreed to work with him uh, in the first $4,000 in services that I provided him. I provided him in stock. And that worked out pretty well because they they eventually went public and then later they were acquired by Oracle for over a billion dollars. Greg Gianforte, unfortunately, went on to become the Greg Gianforte that was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives who punched a reporter in the face and basically went far right freaky. So I was I thought I recognized the name. Yes, he is now a member of the U.S. Congress. Not real thrilled about that, but it's funny where where people's paths take them. Yeah, I should say uh, with with respect to um, heightened passions, we're recording this on uh, January twenty second, twenty twenty, with impeachment hearings going on uh, in the yes. U.S. Senate right as we speak. For those who aren't aware, I think you can probably Google that and and find out what's what's going on there. Um, it's it's a uh, it's an incredible moment, and I should say actually that. Um, it seems to be a feature of my interviews with with American interviewees that there seems to be a some a passionate moment happening all the time uh, in the um, last few years. It's been crazy, and I find myself whenever I'm speaking with or meeting with someone from outside the country, I find myself just apologizing. You know, it, it, I you know my personal opinion is that our government is an embarrassment right now. And um, and uh, it's just really tragic what's what's happened. Yeah, I think I think that uh, that that view is shared by by a lot of people. Um, I imagine we'll, we'll be get, we'll be talking about you know writers later, but um, uh, there, maybe we could tie it into a little discussion of politics if you wanted to, because this is something I've thought about a great deal uh, in the last few years. Um, but and so we'll we'll get there. Here's a little uh, a little uh, teaser for later. Okay. Um, but uh, so carrying on, uh, so uh, you've had this experience with sort of the beginning, the beginning of the sort of tech explosion, uh, doing PR, working with companies, seeing them grow and helping them grow. And then uh, ultimately you had, you've had some successes and you've also become an angel investor uh, in, in various companies as well. Uh, and I wanted to right. ask you about that because you're, you're the founder of your own company, uh, which, which uh, we'll be talking about shortly. But 
what do you, this is sort of a typical question that people ask of investors, but a lot of the people listening to this podcast are probably themselves working for startups or people who are thinking about being, founding a startup. What do you look for as an angel investor in a founder and how do you like to be approached when people cold approach you or if they do? Well, um, I, I still do get approached, um, with investment opportunities. I, I basically stopped angel investing or really curtailed it when I started Smashwords 11 years ago, uh, because Smashwords, um, is, was funded just by myself. Um, and that was a pretty big angel investment, but, but, but prior to Smashwords and I, I ha I've had, I have had some investments since then. Um, you know, I, I'm looking for somebody who's smart, passionate, passion's really important in an entrepreneur. Um, because most startups are going to fail. Most original business ideas, uh, even if they are an original idea, even if they're a great idea, uh, the, the founder is going to need to pivot multiple times before they, you know, find the formula that upon which they can build a successful company. Um, so I'm looking for someone who's got, you know, the smarts, the passion, the perseverance to to um, and the nimbleness and flexibility to to you know constantly question yourself you know just because you've got a strong idea in your head and you're really you've done all your research you know you've got to be willing to change your opinions over time as the facts on the street dictate. Yeah, it's it's really interesting in my kind of limited exposure to this world. Um, there seems to be a type of person who believes that there's just a playbook that you can follow. And this isn't just true in tech startup. It's sort of true in business generally. Um, and sometimes, like if you have a ton of money, maybe there is a playbook, like if you want to buy a, buy a franchise restaurant or something like that. Sure. Uh, do, you know, do, do your market research, you know, make sure you hire the right manager, things like that. But uh, when you're talking about pivoting, this, this involves, you know, a lot of and self-questioning involves passionate, rigorous self-analysis and self-critique. It can't just be, if you have a self-celebratory mindset, uh, you better already be successful or, you know, climbing the ladder in an established company, because if you're out there on your own, you can't have blinders on. You need to be looking in the mirror directly at yourself all the time. It, definitely. And it's also a balancing act uh, because you, you need to have confidence in yourself. But not so much confidence that you become obstinate and pigheaded and blind. So it's a balancing act. Which is hard, which is hard not to, it's hard not to appear that way when you're passionate about what you're doing. <laughs> right. I mean, there are a lot of entrepreneurs that make a really great first impression because they're schizophrenic. You know, their passion is just off the charts. They're seeing things that no one else can see because they're crazy. Um, but again, that's the fine line because often you know, a great entrepreneur with a great idea, they're going to see something before anyone else sees it. They're going to see solutions to problems that other people aren't seeing. And so they will be accused of being crazy, you know, with their idea and for their passion. Um, you know, I certainly ran into that myself starting Smashwords. Well, yeah. People thought it was a crazy idea. It was. Um, Yes. But, you know, you've you've got to find the strength inside yourself to the, the grounding to 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 know that you're on the right path or to believe in yourself. 
That's a great opportunity to segue into the next part of the interview. Um, so uh, there you were, you had this experience in PR and with startups and tech companies and IPOs, and you decided to co-author a novel about the soap opera world. Yeah, so let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about pivots. Yeah, um, yeah so around, um, around 2000, 2001, um, it was right at the, the end of the dot-com boom. It was a time in Silicon Valley where we were probably turning away, you know, th there were times where we would turn away four or five clients a day who wanted to pay us $10,000 or more a month for our services. Um, it, it was that crazy at the end of the dot-com boom. Um, we just couldn't hire people fast enough. And we had just taken on Sun Microsystems, which was a huge publicly traded company, and had to double the size of our PR agency in just the course of a couple months. Uh, one of those people that we hired um, was this reporter. Her name was Leslie Ann, this reporter from Soap Opera Weekly magazine. <laughs> um, and uh, she obviously eventually became my co-author and my wife. Um, but it, that was, it was shortly after that rapid expansion at, at, at Dovetail Public Relations, which was my PR agency. And then the dot-com bust hit. And within a, the course of a couple months, we'd lost like 60% uh, of our business because a PR agency is the first to get cut when a company has to cut expenses. Um, it, and it was... You know, so it was at that time where, you know, I'd been doing PR for like 15 years or longer. I was getting burnt out on it. I met this wonderful new young woman and we were in a relationship and I was hearing about her crazy stories about what it was like being a reporter for a soap opera magazine. And her job was to uh, interview the actors on the set. Of, of these soap operas and she was telling me these stories about how the the um, the actors were crazier in real life than they were in front of their in front of the camera and their crazy soap opera storylines and I suggested she should write a book about it and she said well why don't we do that together and I thought well you know what the heck uh, you know I'm ready for a break from PR. I'm ready for something different. I'd always dreamed of writing a book. I just never thought it would be about, I never thought it would be fiction, never thought it'd be about soap operas. But, you know, I jumped into it whole hog and it was just the most amazing experience. We, we moved to Burbank, California for a couple of months and started interviewing insiders. We interviewed about 50 soap opera industry insiders for their dirt. And then we moved to a, a cabin in Vermont um, that was owned by a guy who had acquired uh, my prior company, which was called Best Calls, which was another startup I did while I was still doing Dovetail. <clears throat> and uh, over the course of four months, we wrote the novel together, and then we did what every new author uh, learns to do. You know, we talked to experts, we did research, we read books, we hired book doctors, editors, uh, we did multiple re revisions on the book. Um, eventually the book, uh, was in good enough shape for us to start shopping it to agents. And so we shopped it to literary agents and we were lucky enough to get offered representation by, uh, two top tier agencies. We got to interview them and choose one. So we worked with Distel and Goderich. 
And we were, you know, thrilled by that. You know, we had visions of seeing our book on the shelves of Barnes and Noble, which is where we went, you know, every Friday night for date night. Um, But after two years of them uh, trying to sell the book to every major publisher in New York of commercial women's fiction, they couldn't sell it. And they, they shopped it to all the publishers twice. So we, you know, we finally had that, the come to Jesus meeting with them. And, you know, they said, look, we've done everything that we can. Um, And it was actually our agent who suggested that we consider self-publishing. And by that time, I had already read um, Dan Pointer's book, his self-publishing manual. So I knew a little bit about self-publishing, but the, it didn't seem like a satisfying solution for us. Um, Because I, you know, I I realized I, I knew enough to realize that, you know, if we couldn't get the book into bookstores, it was going to be really difficult to sell the book. And, you know, I didn't like the idea of filling our garage with thousands of unsold novels. Um, and so I started thinking about eBooks and I started thinking about, um, and I started thinking about how, you know, the situation that my wife and I were facing that, you know, here we had written a book that we really believed in. We, the, you know, the feedback from beta readers, our target readers was fantastic. Um, and I imagined the hundreds of thousands of other writers around the world who would, whose books would never see the light of day, whose books would go to them with their gra- in their grave, um, unpublished simply because a publisher didn't see the commercial potential in the book. And I thought, you know, that's just wrong. And, you know, this was the time when blogging was coming on big. YouTube had just come on the scene in a big way. So people were self-publishing videos on YouTube. They were self-publishing with blogging and reaching massive audiences. And so I thought, well, why can't self-publishing be ubiquitous and free? And, I, you know, I thought about that. And, I, you know, it was pretty pretty obvious that, you know, print publishing is very expensive, but, you know, given my background in Silicon Valley, I thought, well, what about digital? What about ebooks? And so I started researching ebooks. And, and, um, and that's kind of how I came across the idea to create Smashwords. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if somewhere someone could say yes to every author in the world, give every, every writer a chance to publish, and let readers decide what's worth reading? So that was really the genesis of Smashwords. And this was around 2005 that you had the idea? I believe. Yeah, it was about 2005 that, I, that the idea hit me really hard, and I started um, doing my research. I started researching the publishing industry, researching ebooks, researching different file formats and the technology. And I even remember going on to LinkedIn and doing a, posting a survey there uh, for, to writers. I said, what word processor do you use? That was part of my market research. And, um, and so we built, built our systems around that. And um, there were two really uh, important features around self-publishing at the time, uh, particularly with respect to eBooks that I've, have changed quite a bit since then. Uh, one is that e-readers were um, still in a relatively primitive phase. Uh, the Kindle had not come out quite yet. Uh, and the iPhone was not out yet. And so for those who are unaware of this history, uh, and it's getting to be quite some time ago now, um, 
prior to having smartphones, you couldn't really touch, tap your screen and do stuff on your phone. And the screens were much smaller uh, and much less sort of nice to look at. And so I, be, I believe actually I was, when I was researching for, the, researching for this interview, I listened to uh, an interview you did where you were describing something about the history of the e-reader. And when the first ones came out, I think maybe in the late 90s, they could cost hundreds of dollars in, in, in late 90s terms. And the idea that you could just um, add an app and click a link and be reading a book on your phone on a device you carried around with you all the time in your pocket was was not an idea that existed anywhere. Um, but also the other thing was that at the time, self-publishing had quite a stigma attached to it. Um, that this is a complicated thing that I mean, maybe, maybe if you actually, if you wouldn't mind taking a couple of minutes to describe the atmosphere at the sure. time around. Well, around so as you described, uh, Yes, you know, in the late 90s, there was a lot of hype around ebooks. Um, and people were predicting that ebooks were going to take over print and that print books were going to go away. Um, and there were some early um, ebook reading devices that came on the market, but they were clunky. And, and I think your word that you used to describe them uh, is perfect, primitive. Um, they weren't quite ready for prime time yet. And the, the amount of content out there for these. Uh, e-reading devices was limited. Um, and along with the dot-com bust, at the same time, ebooks busted and people pretty much wrote off ebooks. So there we were in 2005 and I was looking at the market data and ebooks, when I first, in 2005, ebooks accounted for, it was either one-eighth or one-quarter of 1% 1 of the book market. Just minuscule. But um, the data that was published by the Association of American Publishers showed that that number was increasing each year, going from like one-eighth of 1% to one-quarter of 1% to one-half of 1%. And I thought, okay, well, maybe in 10 or 20 years, there might be a sizable market here. Um, but, you know, I saw potential there. Um, and then researching self-publishing, it was, you know, to your question about the stigma Yes, in 2005 and 2008, when we launched Smashwords, there was tremendous stigma around self-publishing. No writer with any brain cells wanted to self-publish. It was the path to perdition. It was the path to failure. It was, the, you know, it was what writers would do if they couldn't get a publishing deal anywhere else, they would self-publish. And, and those early self-published authors were called vanity authors because they were just publishing for the vanity of it. And um, I remember reading these criticisms and, and hearing that and thinking, well, that's just crazy. I'm seeing the same types of criticisms leveled against bloggers. You know, how dare bloggers think that they have a right to write online or to publish online or to act like journalists? Um, yet this was the story of the day, you know, any time that you allowed ordinary people to publish something, um, some small percentage of them would publish extraordinary stuff, whether it was on a blog or on a video, they were reaching massive audiences. And I also realized, um, very early on that, um, self-published authors couldn't get print distribution into the bookstores. So, of course, they were going to fail. And that just perpetuated this myth that self-publishing was for sucky authors, for failed authors, that there was no promise in it. 
Um, but I, I had faith that if, if we could just give ordinary people a chance to publish, that, that the market would find the great works and bubble it up. And, um, and, and, and that's what happened. Yeah, and it, it's thank you for sharing that. That that's a great description of of the sort of the way things were were conceived around time and why they were mistaken. Um, and I, I know that you've you've spoken in the past, going all the way back to the invention of the Gutenberg printing press and and Martin Luther uh, in, in the discussion of self published publishing. One thing that I'm sure probably most people listening to this podcast are sort of on on board uh, with with self publishing self publishing as an idea, but um, uh, a lot of people fell for this idea that I would say was more or less invented around the early to mid 20th century, that being a published author meant you were an especially elevated person in a social and intellectual hierarchy. Prior, prior to that, uh, you know, um, Walt Whitman self-published, you know, Nietzsche self-published. There was a time when there were no publishers and right. everything was self-published. Um, and and the, there was a sort of like, there's a weird dialectic in the establishment of the negative connotations of vanity presses because you have to buy into the idea that being selected for publication by someone who owns a publishing company elevates you in the first place in order to believe that that's what someone trying to do right. uh, illegitimately. Right? You, have, you have to believe in legitimate hierarchical elevation to think that someone's going after it illegitimately. Um, and so what this did was it, at least and I'm just, I'll, I won't go on too long about this, about my own views on this, but as a sort of, I, I conceive of myself as a pretty intellectual type person. Uh, and to see the insanity of people who set themselves up as the defenders of intellectual tradition, actually falling for this yes. basically marketing ploy on the part of publishing companies was just incredibly frustrating to encounter. I mean, then like, like I said, the, the more you actually understand the history of books and publishing and intellectual activity generally, the less you likely you are to fall for this weird, weird notion that there's any problem with. Right. Well, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You know, there was this notion um, in 2005 and 2008 when we first launched that, you know, only a publisher possessed the divine wisdom to determine which books were worthy of publication and which books weren't. Only a publisher could determine when a writer was ready to graduate to become a published author. And this was all hogwash. And, and, you know, I recognized it as hogwash very quickly. You know, the reason publishers accept or reject books um, often comes down to the publisher's uh, perceived um, evaluation of what the commercial merit of that book would be. And so here, here we have major publishers in an industry that's been consolidating for the last 30 years, um, focused on trying to acquire works that have the greatest perceived commercial merit. So they're making commercial merit the, the, the measure of a book's quality. And that's that should not be the measure of a book's quality. Um, you know, I don't I don't care if your book has a potential market of just one person. 
And that one person is your daughter or son or grandchild. Um, your book has a right to be published. And, you know, often the books that do go on to become massive bestsellers are books that are so original, no one saw it. No one would have expected it. It came out of nowhere and it became a huge hit. And so, you know, as I thought about this and I thought, you know, wouldn't it just be cool that every writer in the world can become a published author? Just imagine the amazing works that are going to be surfaced for the benefit of humanity. And, you know, and then thinking about the flip side of that, imagine all the the literary treasures that have been lost to humanity simply because a publisher didn't see commercial merit in them. So, you know, I, I, from a very early time, I viewed self-publishing as um, liberating, you know, a chance for someone to blaze their own path of independence to, to, um, to be in charge of their own destiny. And, you know, and what we saw, you know, there was, so a lot of that stigma that we encountered early on, the purveyors of that stigma were the writers themselves. I, I, I'll I'll just never forget how, you know, some of the viciousness I I saw um, of writers leveling criticism upon fellow writers. Like how dare you self-publish? How dare you sink that low? And, you know, how dare you not believe in my religion, which is that I, when, when, you know, if you keep working hard, when you finally get good enough, then a publisher will bless you and anoint you an author. That's crazy. Uh, Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. You're reminding me of, um, I was at, uh, What's yeah. the, the Book Expo America uh, conference, in, which happens every year, every summer in New York City. I was there in, I believe, I believe 2013. And I remember um, being in, uh, there, was one, there was one panel mm-hmm. on self-publishing. This was 2013. There was a single panel on self-publishing. Uh, Guy Kawasaki was, was the, main, the main speaker there. Um, and he was talking about how he would like the last time he'd spoke to a publisher, they said, well, how are you going to use your Twitter following to help increase sales of this book? And he said, wait a minute, what, what are you going to do for me is the question here. Um, Why am I with you at all? And there was a very, I'm going to say supercilious person who asked a very supercilious question of Guy Kawasaki in the Q and a afterwards. And when they were asked, why was it so important to them to have a publisher? They said dignity. And not externally, internally, I just exploded. I was like, don't, please don't write a word and don't take yourself seriously if your dignity is contingent on some company deciding that they're going to publish your book because it's a business. Uh, And that, sort of touching on the politics here, that idea of internalizing your own oppression by wedding elevation in the hierarchy to money that way uh, is a real trick that's being played mm-hmm. on you. Unless you, you already, unless you already stand to benefit from it, yeah. uh, you know, don't, don't be a sucker uh, is the sort of crudest way of putting it. But that, that reminds me actually. So the other thing I re- remember from that conference was a panel of, of uh, 
you know, really a, a panel of VIPs that include this, included the CEO of Simon and Schuster and the CEO of Overdrive. I hope I'm not getting that wrong, but yeah, it would have been Steve Potash from Overdrive. This was 2013. And I remember speaking of passion, Steve Potash just waving an iPad in front of, he was sitting next to the CEO of Simon and Schuster, I think just waving this iPad aggressively and saying, this is not a science experiment. This is not a science experiment. Uh, and this was because there was a lot of, um, well, this is another topic, but even to this day in the print publishing, in the legacy publishing industry, the opposition to eBooks runs, runs deep. Uh, and what he was trying to say is like, this is an opportunity, this, this screen device, not, not a threat. If your underlying goal is to get people to read books, uh, is to publish books and read books. But this ties into a point that I know you've made in the past, which is that publishers aren't there to publish books. They're there to sell books, which is a yeah, really that's interesting. That's kind of a dirty little secret in the industry. You know, you know, although the publishing industry is made up of people who truly love books, um, the publishing decisions are not made necessarily out of love. Um, yeah. And that leads us to some of the issues that you, you, you talked about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That remain that remain true to this day. And so, so now we've, now we've set the stage for the passion and the, the sort of deep cultural and sort of social mission that was behind Smashwords. Um, so to go from 30,000 feet to sort of, you know, ground level. So there, there you were starting a startup in the eBooks world uh, with that was going to be, that was going to have an online store and engaging in e-commerce and stuff like that. Uh, how did you go about just setting it up? How did you find programs? So it, it, as I mentioned, it was around 2005 that I started working on the business plan. <clears throat> By um, end of 2006, early 2007, I was done with the business plan and I was ready to hire somebody. Um, but it took me about a year to find somebody to hire. Um, and, you know, finally I did find somebody that I could hire um, through a connection with my brother, Doug, who at the time worked for Google. And so I, you know, hired our, you know, our first full-time hire as CTO and he built the site, built the platform. Uh, you know, I, I designed it. It was all designed you know, on paper in Microsoft Word, um, the user interface and the features and functionality and the, the flow. Um, and so the, 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 the developer developed it. We, um, so the, the initial idea of Smashwords was to create an ebook self-publishing platform. So anyone um, could come to the site for free and self-publish an ebook. They had upload a Microsoft Word document and we would automatically convert it into um, the major ebook file types. So EPUB, Mobi, PDF, and then some other obscure file types that, that don't really matter so much anymore. Um, and, you know, and we, we had, a, we offered a store because, you know, our authors needed a place to sell their stuff. Um, so it was uh, February 2018 <clears throat> that that we first unveiled uh, the idea of Smashwords to the world. It was at the Tools of Change conference in New York City. Uh, at two, 2008, yeah. you mean, I think. Oh, sorry. You said 18. What's a decade between friends? <laughs> <laughs> Just want to be clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 2008. 
February 2008, New York City. Um, that's when we announced Smashwords and we opened up our beta, started uh, accepting uh, beta testers. And then um, in May, we publicly launched. Uh, by the end of the year, we had 140 books from 90 or 91 authors. And um, on a good day, we were selling about $10 worth of books in our little bookstore. And our, our commission is only about 10% of the list price. So we were bringing in a whopping dollar a day in net. And meanwhile, I was burning a $10,000 a month hole in my pocket. Um, and what were your early adopter customers like, if, 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 you can, if you can recall? Were they, were they already people who were kind of technically minded themselves? Or were they people who they were just, you know, just wow, ordinary Let me writers um, facing the common challenge? You know, they were unable to find a publisher. They had written a book fiction or nonfiction that they had great passion for and, um, you know, wanted to get their book out into the world. Uh, certainly at that time, self-publishing was not the option of first choice for anyone. Um, but these were brave authors and I've got mad respect for them. They were the early adopters. Um, but yeah, so, so it was just, you know, ordinary writers. And um, so your, your, your uh, group of writers grew and grew over time. Uh, and I imagine you were adding, adding more and more features to the site. And then eventually became, and actually my, my first entry to Smashwords when I learned about it years ago was actually as a distribution service uh, rather, rather than a bookstore. And so when did you, when, how did that come about? Because that like you, you provide, you know, as, as I mentioned yeah. in the intro, the, you're the biggest distributor of independent eBooks in the world. And you do this, by by you know people just have one point of entry where they say they can even just upload just they can upload an ebook file that they've made add some add some information around it and then it can be distributed to right. all these different services so um at once you know going back to that the end of that first year when on a good day we were netting a dollar a day um you know at that point the business was not looking very viable and so I had to do some serious self-reflection. I knew that if we had been backed by, by venture capitalists, they either would have wanted to pull the plug on us or had us move in a new direction, like doing something we never wanted to do, like charge authors for our services. Um, but I eventually realized, um, it took me a year to realize this, that um, readers go to bookstores to buy books, to discover books. And no one had ever heard of this dinky little Smashwords store. And, and I looked around, you know, how do we get our books into the main bookstores? And it became clear that we needed to find a distributor. But when I looked at the major distributors out there, like Ingram, the world's largest book distributor, um, they only worked with large publishers. And so I, I went to my CTO, and I, I remember suggesting this. It, I said, you know, what if we became the Ingram of self-published books? What if we became a distributor? And we just laughed at ourselves. We didn't know anything about distribution. So it, it was in 2009 
that I started putting out some feelers and got connected with Barnes and Noble and got connected with Sony and had discussions with them. And to my surprise, they wanted all of our books. So by, you know, that time, mid 2009, I think we were up around a thousand or 2000 books and they, they wanted them all. And so we started distributing our books to these major retailers um, and our book started selling. And, it, 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 and so that, that move was a smart move for us. And it, from that point forward, we decided, okay, we're a distributor. We're, that's what we're going to focus on. And we're going to focus on, um, you know, growing our distribution network. And when Apple, when I first heard rumors that Apple was coming out with the iPad, this was, you know, I started calling into Apple. I didn't know anyone at Apple. And I heard that they were going to do a bookstore and, you know, we got connected with the people at Apple and um, we had, and, and they, I, I still remember this to this day. Um, you know, they, they said, look, we're doing the store. If you want, we're going to be working with a small number of aggregators, which is their word for distributor. And um, you're welcome to, to be our aggregator. If you can jump through all these hoops in the next two or three weeks. And there were a lot of hoops and a lot of requirements. And uh, my CTO, Bill Kendrick, did an amazing job, and we dropped everything. We were even in discussions with Amazon at the time to distribute to Amazon. We just put Amazon on hold, went whole hog into Apple, and managed to have like 2,200 books in their bookstore on day one when they launched their bookstore. Yeah, and, and, you know, that worked out really well for us. And, um, you know, the, by, by early 2010, it was clear that our future was in distribution. That's a really amazing story. I should, I should mention, you just reminded me, um, a few years ago, I interviewed Derek Sivers for this podcast, oh, yeah. the founder of CD Baby. Uh, and, and he had a really interesting, which was uh, the first independent uh, sort of CD distribution service um, online. Uh, and uh, he was there in early days of, of iTunes and things like that and had had some interesting stories about uh about interacting with apple that sounded like they might not have been quite as quite as positive as, as yours were but but that idea of being there with a big company like that on the ground is just of, of something like that is just so exciting and such a such an interesting part of the yeah um these I, you know our, our relationship with apple has always been awesome i've just always been impressed by apple uh they are a uh they they are pro creator so there's you know a deep respect within apple for people who create stuff so authors musicians and um it really shows in their policies and in their their technology and their sophistication and how they engage with distributors and with authors um They've really been fantastic to work with these last 10 years. Um, I can't point to a, I even put this in the, our, in my end of year post, I can't point to a single policy change that Apple has made over the last 10 years that did anything that was harmful to authors. And that can't be said for some of the others. 
Yeah, we might. I think we'll be getting to some of those <laughs> others a little bit a little bit later in this interview. But um, uh, I mean, there, there's there's so much right. that we could talk about. So many of the innovations that that you've seen in self publishing ebooks over the years, like for example, convincing authors that giving away a free book uh, can actually help you. Right, and that's something that we were um, doing from uh, the very beginning, and that was one of these radical ideas. You know, when we started working with bookstores, and we and we told them we want you to be able to accept our books that are priced at free, and they were like, "What?" Why? Why do you want to sell something for free? I remember Barnes & Noble hadn't even heard of that concept. And they even had to do something kludgy with their system to give the book like an imaginary price of a penny. They've obviously evolved beyond that now. Um, yeah, the, the, and I, I, I even remember speaking, um, you know, in those early years at conferences and encouraging authors to have at least one book that's priced it free as a way to make more money. And I remember people in the audience just looking at me like I was smoking opium. I was crazy, but I knew that it would work going back to my years of experience at McAfee, you know, 15 years earlier um, that, that, that there was, that, right. that, that was viable. Yeah. It's a, uh... It's um, one one other another sort of the battle that I know you've probably been had to fight over and over again, uh, convincing off talking to authors about is also um, right. DRM and concerns about about piracy. What's the what's the sort of official Smashwords position on whether or not authors should be worried about piracy and whether people should use digital uh, rights restrictions on well, I've always been products. an opponent. I've always been opposed to DRM um, to copy protection schemes. Um, DRM and these different copy protection schemes just penalize honest readers. They make it impossible for an honest reader to enjoy their book, to read their book across multiple devices. Um, and, and, you know, piracy is a problem in the industry. It always has been. Um, but my advice to authors is that, you know, there's really only one surefire way to prevent piracy and that's to never publish um, if you do publish and you achieve any amount of success you are going to get pirated most of that piracy that happens is going to be uh, what i refer to as accidental piracy so it's that enthusiastic reader who discovers you for the first time you rocked their world and they want to share your book with their friends and with their family. Um, and that's going to happen. When that happens with a paper book, no one calls it piracy. But when it happens with an ebook, it is piracy. And I, I just encourage authors to consider this um, the most effective, lowest cost form of marketing that they're ever going to enjoy is word of mouth marketing. It, it, it you know, we, I would never encourage piracy. I know there are authors out there that will actually upload their own books to the pirate sites because they believe it helps them sell more books. Um, I, I don't advocate that. Um, but, it, you know, piracy is a, is, it's going to be a fact of life. I, 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 it, I don't want authors to go out there and sign up for those anti-piracy services. It'll send you an email multiple times a day that they found a book that they suspect is your book pirated on some pirate site. Um, if you are bombarded with emails like that, 
throughout the day, you're never going to get any writing done. Yeah, it's it's really interesting you bring that up. I mean, it's it's that there, there's it's a mindset and a set of feelings that drives a particular type of person to be really concerned and and not just concerned where we should all be concerned about things like piracy, but to be get emotionally wrapped up in it, right? And like I think anyone who's been pirated knows the feeling of shock you get when you see that you're you see your you your feel violated pirated somewhere. Um, you you feel violated, and that's very true, but you know, don't be like the guy who recently published an article in the New York Times where he talked about keeping a folder in his email store called Thieves where he stores links to all of the places online where he found his, where he finds his book stolen. And I just, I remember reading that and just thinking how sad this idea of authors sitting alone in front of their computers, looking at the internet for pirated copies of their books and and feeling really bad about it just like i know how how how, how bad it feels but you need exactly. to get over it and get yeah. back to writing which is what you should be doing that's like please write don't 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 let these don't let these people in addition to sort of stealing your work steal your mind and, and your, your time productivity and your right. feelings from you as well right don't yeah because otherwise you're just yeah. going to be in a state yeah. of constant anxiety um but you know often we i you know i, I i'm in touch with writers every single day. And, and I'm very accessible. I mean, anybody can email me anytime and I will do my best to respond to you. Um, you know, I, I lost track of the number of times that writers have contacted me angry that the reason that they've only sold one book over the last year is because their book's been stolen millions of times. And, and no, that's not what's happening. And I remember the very first year of Smashwords, some guy said, to me, he said, do you think I'm a fool? The moment I upload my book to your site, it's going to get pirated millions of times. And my response was, if I could pay $10,000 to have my novel read by a million people, I would love, I would love that. I would love my book to be stolen by a million people. It'd probably lead to movie deals and all kinds of great benefits that I can't even imagine if, if only I could get read that widely with my novel. So yeah, it, you know, piracy is going to happen. There, there are things that you can do to minimize it. And this, this is what we encourage authors to, to do. Number one, distribute everywhere. Um, often piracy is a symptom of, you know, creating demand for a product, but not fulfilling the demand. You know, if, if some reader in Brazil um, sees on Facebook from their American friends, they learn about some new book, but they can't buy it from a Brazilian bookstore and they can't buy it in their country, then, well, of course, they're going to try to find some way to get that book. So make sure your book's distributed everywhere. Make it easier to purchase than to steal. Um, and, and so that's a big thing to do. Uh, price your book so it's it's fairly priced. You know, if you're writing a novel, don't try to sell the book for $25 as an ebook. You know, customers don't want to pay for pay that. Um, and then the other thing that we recommend is um, <clears throat> there's something called the Smashwords license statement. And I've put this into the public domain. I encourage anyone to take it, steal it. It's just a, a, a statement that you put at the top of your book along the lines of, um, you know, this book is licensed for your personal enjoyment only. If, if, this, if, you, if this book was not 
purchased by you or expressly for your enjoyment, then, you know, please honor this writer's hard work and purchase your own copy basically says that. So it appeals to um, a reader's moral and ethical obligation without, you know, fire and brimstone threats of $500,000 fines for stealing this book. Um, And I think that's a really good way to just gently remind people, remind readers of their obligation to support the author. If you do those three things, I think piracy is not going to be as big of a deal for you. It's uh, another really interesting thing that's uh, sort of been been learned or known uh, or communicated to authors over the years. One is, as we've mentioned, is um, uh, give away a free book that often can really help. Another one is don't don't necessarily be don't don't get preoccupied with piracy all the time. Uh, and a third thing is pre-orders of books that that uh, you I know you you've you've talked about uh, being really important. So this is the idea that if you've got someone's attention, if you can have a a web page out there where someone can buy your book in advance then you get their attention and their money. Uh, you get their money when you've got their attention and you don't have to, you won't, uh, you're more likely to get a sale that way than if they have to remember right. to come back and look later or wait around for an announcement of your of the book sale. But in addition to that, uh, and, and you know, anyone interested in pre-orders can probably Google online and find all kinds of self-publishing blogs where you hear all about the value of that. And, and indeed from uh, Smashwords, uh, I think often annual sort of data posts. Um, you've got a new thing. Yes. Uh, which is pre-sales. And I was wondering if you could talk, which you've indeed filed a patent uh, yes. mm-hmm. claim for, uh, application for, sorry. So um, I was wondering if you could talk sure. a little bit about what, so, what pre-sales um, are. Let's talk about pre-orders a little bit more first. Um, so, you know, we've been doing pre-orders at Smashwords now for close to eight years, seven or eight years. And yes, pre-orders are like one of the most impactful best practices that any indie author can take advantage of because of that ability to capture the order in advance at the moment you've got the reader's interest and attention. Um, So pre-sales is different. So with a pre-order, you're placing a reservation on that book. And then you have to wait until the book's public release date to be able to pay for that book and to be able to read that book. With pre-sales, the author is able to make their book available to the reader in advance of the public release date. And so this is, um, this, this has been my focus for much of the last year. Um, We're really excited about it. We're so excited about it as we were developing the, the feature at Smashwords to do pre-sales um, and to be able to manage multiple release dates for a single book. Um, you know, I realized that this is something that if, if we just put it out like everything else we've put out in the past, that everyone's just going to copy it. And um, so we wanted to protect the idea. And so we decided to file for a patent. And um, so the, Developing the patent took a long time, and you know we filed it this year. Filed it October twenty second. It was sixty five page patent application. Um, in December, uh, so a couple months ago, um, we got notice from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office that they approved our application uh, for fast track uh, consideration. 
Um, so this means that um, we've been assigned a patent examiner and that they're going to look at the patent and evaluate it um, faster than they would have otherwise. And we're, we're eager for them to uh, look at it, to react to it, um, and to get the patent uh, ultimately approved if we can. No guarantee that we can. Um, but I think there's a pretty good chance that we will. Thanks. Yeah, well, best, best, best of luck. Um, I've been, I've been tangentially involved in a, in a patent application process in the United States before, and I have some awareness of how many lawyers and how many hours, uh, and how much money yes. goes, goes into the process. Um, I should say in the context here, just, I guess, two things. One is that Amazon patented one click right. buying on its site. I believe that, 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 that's some, in some sense kind of expired now, but, but the idea of patenting processes like this is, is, is not, is not new. Um, and it's there to protect, you know, people's intellectual property and, and to encourage innovation and things like that. Um, and just to, just to give, maybe give people a sense of the scope of this idea, it's not, it's not um, only intended to be by you to be used by people for selling eBooks. It can basically be used for any sale of digital products online. And so in the same way that like, you know, one click ordering actually is a real, like there aren't, there aren't really so many deep e-commerce innovations that you really see all the time. But this idea of having a, a process for letting customers get involved in a pre-sale of something uh, is actually a really, a really sort of deep e-commerce. Well, thanks. Yeah. Innovation. So yeah, the Amazon's one click patent expired about a year ago. Um, but that was a tremendous innovation that gave Amazon um, incredible strategic advantage over the last 20 years. Um, <clears throat> it's really difficult to get that type of patent. Um, you know, it says people refer to it as a software patent. Um, so I, I have no illusion. Uh, it, it, it will be difficult for us to get this patent, but if we can, it'll be all the more valuable. Um, you know, one of the one of the reasons I'm so excited about pre-sales is I think it's going to help. Um, it's it's going to create a new competitive arena. Um, it's going to create new opportunities for product creators, for authors, um, because I think um, there's there's a lot of value. Um, from a consumer perspective, um, consumers value timeliness. If there is a product that they are looking forward to receiving some new upcoming product, um, there's a lot of value attached by the consumer to be able to purchase that product early or to be able to enjoy it early. And so, you know, I'm looking at the, the millions of self-published authors out there who are self-publishing their original works. They're out there generating demand in the marketplace for their works and if they have the ability to offer a pre-sale, which is highly desirable to a customer, then the author has the ability to trade something for that access. So, um, you know, as so I can give you an example of how we implemented pre-sales at Smashwords. So you can you can upload a book to Smashwords as a pre-order. We'll distribute that pre-order to all of our retailers. And that pre-order has that public release date, but you can do a special pre-sale, either a private or a public pre-sale in the Smashwords store in advance of your general release date. 
and you have the opportunity to to um, trade something or to 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 gain something that you wouldn't or, ordinarily gain from an average retailer. Um, and something that I think is really important for authors is to build a, a marketing platform that they control. Uh, anytime that you're selling through a typical retailer, um, that retailer controls the customer relationship. So your relationship with readers is mediated by that retailer. Um, or your access to your prospective readers is mediated by a social media platform. And that's dangerous when your relationship with your reader is mediated by someone else. And I think every author should focus the majority of their marketing time on thinking about how can I build a platform that I control how can I build my private mailing list? Because once you've got your readers on your mailing list, then you can contact them without having to go through some gatekeeper. So this is really important because if indie authors are going to be the captains of their own destiny, if they want to retain their independence, they need to have a relationship with their reader. So yeah, that's that's really well said. I, I, it reminds me, I actually had that. Um, yeah, I had a, a self-published author on here who said basically the, the exact same thing about something that happened early in her self-publishing career, yeah. where she got kicked off Twitter. Um, she never figured out why. She was back on pretty quickly, but it was this real. She had a moment of clarity about whether or not you about the importance of being in control of your own relationship with your readers and with your fans and so she started her own website and it's brilliant and stuff like that it was a really hard slog sure. she had to learn how to maintain that too but um the, when you talk about independence and control so there's control that a service might have over your relationship with your current past and future potential readers but there's also control of you the author and control of your books um, and I know I may, I'm trying to draw a connection here because I drew it, I drew it in my mind when I was researching for this interview. So I'm not sure if it's out the, if it's a real connection that was driving the partly driving the focus that you put on developing this pre-sales idea. But one thing that services like, like Amazon, which we'll be talking about pretty shortly, I think, uh, do is they can place restrictions on you. So if you want to, if you want to be on our, on this particular platform, you can't price your book any differently anywhere else, or you can't, or you can't price it lower anywhere else, or you can't even distribute it anywhere else. And so the idea, it struck me that the idea of a pre-sale is a very powerful tool for helping authors navigate around the kinds of restrictions that they might be subject to at another, at a later point in their yes, journey certainly. with a book. Um, and it's an opportunity for the author to um, leverage the desirability of the pre-sale uh, to negotiate something favorable to the author. So I'm imagining a future where retailers compete for the right, for the privilege to carry your pre-sale. So imagine if, um, so here your book is on pre-order everywhere, but imagine a retailer is able to, to say, okay, Sam Smith, author, um, you know, you've got a great track record in our store. We want to carry your pre-sale and we want to carry it exclusively. And if you'll give us the exclusive right to carry your pre-sale, then we'll pay you, you know, an 80% royalty or whatever, 
or we'll give you these uh, this this merchandising support in our store or some benefit. So the author is going to have the ability to trade um, access to their pre-sale for some benefit that benefits the author. So that's kind of longer term what I'm thinking, but you know, even shorter term at Smashwords, um, we're doing something that no other store does. With the launch of our Smashwords pre-sales, we give customers the option to subscribe to your private newsletter while they're checking out their pre-sale purchase. You know, it struck me thinking about this. I'm not a big gamer myself, but man, would this idea be a huge, I mean, uh, there's, there's something that you can get in exchange for it, like someone's email address on your mailing list, yeah. but there's also just straight up money. Uh, I can imagine if you, if you were, if you were offering early access to the next Zelda game, uh, if you did a pre-sale of that, you can just imagine how crazy sure, uh, everybody would go. Uh, and, and it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of, a, and the thing is like, it's, right. it's a fun idea. Yeah. Right? Well, you know? certainly for, um, for games, really huge or, um, you know, huge with books or, or with music, like imagine you're Taylor Swift. Um, you know, you could probably Mm -hmm. get Apple or Amazon to pay you in advance just to sell your book, your sell your next album, um, you know, two days early on their platform. Uh, so, so all yeah, of this is yeah. covered by the patent, um, thinking ahead, and not just for digital products like ebooks and music and games, but also physical products. Anything that's sold online uh, could be sold as a presale. Anything that customers, any new product um, that customers desire, um, could be sold as a presale online and sold in a way that it that the the creator of that product is able to accrue special benefits uh, simply because of the demand for early access. And, you know, we already see, you know, when when most people think about pre-sales, they think about ticket pre-sales for, you know, ticketed performances. Um, But those pre-sales that people uh, take advantage of with tickets is they're really more akin to pre-orders. You, you might, might be able to buy, your ticket early as a pre-sale, but you can't enjoy the event until the public event, until the public enjoys it. Um, so this is kind of a radical idea to be able to enjoy the product early. Uh, speaking of issues of control and independence, um, one of the reasons I chose this moment to invite you to be on the podcast, which I mentioned mentioned before uh, we started recording, was uh, your latest end of year post uh, on the blog, the Smashwords blog. Yes. I think it's at blog.smashwords.com. Uh, and the, the post was called House of India on Fire. Um, just to, for, for anyone listening, Mark has for like 10 years now been writing these end of year posts um, uh, that make predictions about about the future. And it's actually a really interesting, they're really interesting time capsules. Um, and uh, so you, your latest one was called House of house of India on fire. And okay. I, I'm going to quote you back at yourself. So my apologies in advance for that, I'm going to quote a couple of sentences. Uh, but I wanted to say to people to sort of hear these in the context of what we were talking about a little while ago about the motivation for creating smash words in the first place for um, unleashing or for making available to the world books that otherwise would not have been made available to the world and the independence that, that, is required in order to do that. So you wrote, quote, 
I celebrated the virtues of the indie author movement back in 2014 when I published the Indie Indie Author Manifesto. I celebrate the movement and its world-changing potential to this day, yet it's becoming increasingly clear to me that the indie author movement and everything it represents is in jeopardy. Authors liberated themselves from one gatekeeper only to find themselves in the clutches of another, end quote. So who's the gatekeeper and what are the... So there are multiple gatekeepers. You know, when, when, when we first came on the scene 11 years ago, you know, self-published authors, the early self-published authors, for them, self-publishing was an act of liberation, an act of defiance. You know, it was a way of saying, well, screw you, traditional publishers. You don't see the value in my work, so I'm going to self-publish. And I'm going to find success on my own terms without you as a gatekeeper standing in my way. Well, so yes, thanks to self-publishing and thanks to eBooks, you know, it was thanks to eBooks that it enabled uh, major retailers to stock every self-published book. So eBooks are a big part of this democratization. So, so there we were in 2009, 2010, suddenly every self-published author in the world had access to every major retailer in the world. That was wonderful. Uh, that was a cause for celebration. Uh, many of our authors um, that previously were unable to get a traditional book deal or even unable to get uh, an agent you know, found themselves USA Today, you know, New York Times bestselling authors, finding a global audience of readers. That was wonderful. Uh, you know, so much celebration. Um, but what we've seen now over the last 10 years is that um, the gatekeepers have creeped in. So, you know, we talked earlier about how, you know, a social media platform or a retailer can mediate your relationship with your potential readers. Well, we saw a few years ago, um, it was, you know, a big controversy within the indie author community, um, Facebook. You know, authors had invested so many years and so much money developing their following at Facebook only to have Facebook turn around and hold your readers hostage and start charging you advertising fees and promotion fees simply so that what you're writing can appear in the news feeds of people who already said they want to follow what you're posting. Um, so that's an example of um, a gatekeeper is, you know, stealing something there. Um, and then of course, Amazon is the most brilliant um, example of um, of a retailer with a really unique um, business strategy, um, a strategy that's different from any other ebook retailer. They're in the business of commoditizing everything that they sell, and there's a reason they want to do that. They they want products to seem interchangeable to their consumers. Um, because when they do that, an individual author or publisher no longer has any power in their store. And, um, and then Amazon has the ability to start dictating terms and prices. So what, you know, what is your royalty rate going to be? What can you price your product at? Um, can you even sell your product at other stores other than Amazon? And, and so what we've seen with Amazon, you know, starting in 2011, they announced KDP Select, which required exclusivity in their store for a period of three months. Um, when they first 
launched that in December 2011. I did a blog post the very same day warning authors that this is dangerous, that you are going to starve all these other retailers that want to support you of your books. And if you starve these retailers of your books, you're going to starve these retailers of customers. You're going to starve them of their ability to support you in the future. Uh, You know, I warned authors at the time that they risked becoming tenant farmers, tilling Amazon soil. soil. Um, I warned authors that they should study the Irish potato famine because that's what was going to happen. And unfortunately, that's what has happened. Um, And it's what's happened has even been worse than what I predicted. You know, we're state, we're, we're in a state today where um, there are many authors that are exclusive to Amazon, getting hundred percent of their earnings from Amazon. And even authors who aren't exclusive to Amazon might be getting 70, 80% of their earnings from a single retailer. So as you probably saw on that blog post, you know, I raised the question, if you're getting 70, 80% of your sales from a single retailer, Can you honestly call yourself an independent author? This is like a really difficult question that authors need to start grappling with. Are we still indie authors? Are we still the captains of our destiny? And I would argue that our independence has been slowly stripped from us as authors. And I would also argue that we've been complicit in that. You know, every time an author enrolls their book in KDP Select, they are casting a vote for every other retailer to go out of business. Now, I've been talking about this for, you know, since 2011. And I, I know that when I talk about it, 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 it can be pretty upsetting to authors. And I, I totally understand that and respect it. You know, if, if you're getting most of your earnings from Amazon, and your author earnings are what puts food on your family's table and pays your rent, then can I really blame you for doing what's in your best interest? It's really, it's really interesting. Um, I hadn't quite put together the, I'd, I'd heard you make the commodification point before, but I hadn't quite put together what, what was really behind that. And thank you for explaining that so clearly. Um, the, one of the interesting, you mentioned Facebook changing things up, and that reminded me another thing you see that can be dispiriting uh, in the indie author community is people just spending all, I talked earlier about people mm-hmm. spending all their time looking for pirated copies of their books online. Another thing is spending all your time trying right. to game the algorithm. Uh, this isn't new. This isn't unique to to books. I mean, this you know that Google will change things up and all of a sudden your website for whatever it is you're doing doesn't get any attention anymore. But there's some, you know, the, the sort of technicalities of it aside, the idea of getting into that mindset that there's this algorithm that's any that somebody can just yank on and mm-hmm. change them and is being changed all the time. And when you start applying machine learning and, and stuff like that, no one, there isn't even going to be some evil genius out there who kind of knows something and is pulling strings uh, to get you. Um, the idea that part of being an author now involves something that it didn't involve before. It always involved marketing. It always involved treating it like a business. But the idea that you're, there's this one service with this, basically, let's just call it one. It's not quite. It's not true. But one algorithm right. that you're that you're fighting with all the time. You, you're instead of thinking about you know what's going to happen to my character in the next chapter. You're like, how am I going to draw attention? Should, should I have the character do that because this software is going to be looking at it and going, oh, no one died in chapter two, so you know I'm not going to 
promote your book as much as I would otherwise. Uh, you know, I mean, that's like it just the weirdness of the things that you yeah, can get well, occupied. It, you know, I, I've written about this in the past, and it's really kind of a it's it's sad um, if you. I mean, anybody who spends any time online um, with authors and looking at what authors are talking about online, invariably those discussions devolve into, you know, how do I, um, how do I please the algorithm? You know, how do I get, how do I, you know, get the most out of um, KDP Select Exclusivity and Kindle Unlimited? And, you know, how do I, um, how do I do a better job of running Amazon ads? <laughs> and, you know, people are focused, so, so many indies are focused on these things that are really the wrong things to be focused on. You should be focused on writing, not on how to please a single retailer's algorithm. But again, step back and, and look at, you know, Amazon is masterful at creating policies and systems that shape a certain behavior among their product suppliers, among their authors. Um, Amazon knows that writers write for, for many reasons, and often the number one reason isn't about money, it's about being read. It's for self-expression, and you can't express yourself unless you're read by somebody. Amazon knows that there are enough writers out there who value readership over money that they can continue to uh, reduce what they pay authors. Uh, the effective royalty rate at Amazon has been dropping for years. You know, originally they were paying 35% list. Then Apple came along with their agency price, their agency offer and started paying 70%. So Amazon started paying 70%. So that was go, that's going back to 2010. Amazon did that because of competition. But even from the beginning, Amazon has found ways to pay authors less. There's a, a, a delivery fee for the file size. Then when they introduced KDP Select and Kindle Unlimited and started paying not based on the price of the book, but based on um, the number of pages that are read. So they're, they're changing all the metrics by which that, that determine, you know, how an author reaches readers, how they're discovered by readers, how they're compensated for their books. And in every instance, um, you know, Amazon is, you know, finding creative ways to pay authors less, to strip authors of their independence um, and make them subservient to, to their platform. And, and uh, so what would you recommend? We can probably infer from what you've said earlier, but what would you recommend uh, indie authors do to change the course of things over the next decade so it doesn't you know, continue along down this path? Because who knows if it continued along down this path where it well, could be in 10 years? For, I, for the many years that I've been talking about this now, you know, I've been talking about how it's not too late, that, that what you need to do is respect your own independence, fiercely protect it. Anytime anyone does anything that strips you of your independence, that strips you of your ability to have self-determination over what is the price of your book? Where am I going to sell my book? You know, how long can my book be? How short does it need to be? Um, anything that, that 
that strips you of that independence, of that free will, of that self-determination, you've got to fight against it. So the first thing to do is to not to, to understand that if you're going to make your book exclusive to Amazon, that that exclusivity comes at a price. So yes, you will make your book more visible. But what is the price? It means you can't sell anywhere else. It means all those other retailers that are spending millions of dollars every year to support you and your fellow authors, they're starved of your book. They're starved of your book sales. They're starved of your readers. They're going to lose readers. They're going to lose business. They're eventually going to go out of business. And when there are fewer retailers competing for the the favors of indie authors, that's a recipe for the remaining retailers to say, look, we don't need to pay you 70% anymore. We can pay you 10%. Or hell, you know, we can charge you to be read. And that's what's happening. That's happening today. It's happening today at Amazon. You, know, you look at the, the, the indie author right. discussions, it's all about, you know, pleasing the algorithms, as we talked about. It's pleasing Amazon advertising. Amazon ads are a tax on your earnings. It's a way of effectively reducing your royalty rate. So even if you're going to earn close to 70% list on the book, if you've got to spend a whole bunch of money to reach that reader, your effective royalty rate might drop to 50%, 20%, 10%, or even negative. And that's what's happening. Well, and yeah, that, that reminds me. So just, this is kind of like getting into the weeds, which I like to do mm-hmm. at the end, nearing the end of these interviews. But um, uh, one example that I think you've written about with Amazon ads is that if you do a lot of work to bring attention to your author profile page, say, on Amazon, or maybe maybe I'm just making it up. If you do a lot of work to bring attention to one of your books on Amazon, Amazon can know that and it will sell ad space at the top of your book page right. to other people on Amazon so that they can benefit in that way and maybe even draw people away. Like they, they want to read, now they want to read this other werewolf novel instead of, instead of yours. And competition in marketing has always been a thing, but the, the promise that Amazon gives you and the reason people go right. there is we're going to give you eyeballs. But it turns out they're in, they're they're in control. Of they can just you can just get well. They can yeah, just let's talk about that for a second. So um, I would encourage every one of your listeners to do this right now. Go to Amazon, go to their homepage, click to the book section, and then type in your pen name. What you're going to see is the first three rows of search results have been sold to advertisers. So. Amazon is engaged in the systematic theft of author platforms. There's no other way to put it. And this is by design. So all of these authors that are advertising on Amazon ads, you are trampling on the platforms of your fellow authors. And as an author, your platform is being trampled on by other authors who are advertising there. Um, Amazon is selling your platform, selling your brand name to the highest bidder. I mean, think about it. It is such a customer disservice. If I'm a reader and I go and I type in, you know, my favorite author, Sam Smith, I'm just making up the name. And the first three rows of results I get are not books from Sam Smith. You know, what the F is that about? Yeah, they're, they're making, they're making money off whatever right. attention you've, you've managed, yeah. so, whatever so, popularity yeah. you've So they're, they're, they're trading off of your brand equity that you 
labored years to develop, they're selling it to someone else. Um, so, you know, in my mind, that's just unconscionable. And I think, I think it's, it's particularly resonant in the indie world. Like, I mean, you, you spoke about, um, you know, the 10, the $10 in revenue a day and the $1 in kind of, you know, yeah. uh, profit as it were. Um, uh, and I, what I, I mean, what I really appreciated about the way you told that story is you were telling the same story that a self-publishing author, self-published author starts out with. Um, uh, and the thing about the thing about being independent as a business person, which includes being a self-published author is that you really feel this direct connection between, and often without a budget for marketing, you feel this direct connection between all the work that you do and then the, the, the attention that you can somehow scrape together and manage to get. Um, that's different from if you're like, let's say working in the marketing department for a company selling products. So if, if I'm sure that people like that don't like having someone Google, you know, Colgate and have some other brand of toothpaste show up at the top of the search, but you'll understand it. You're in the, you're in the marketing game, you're big companies competing with each other. But when it's these independent, independent authors, uh, who are doing their own marketing, uh, it's, it's, it just, it seems, it seems qualitatively yes, different. Yes, uh, it, it is. It is different because, you know, we indie authors, you know, we are the manufacturer of our product. We don't have big marketing budgets. We can't outsource our writing to China. And, and so it puts authors in a really difficult position. And Amazon knows this, that authors are in a vulnerable position, that authors are desperate to be read, and uh, that authors are, are, you know, willing to do just about anything to get read. Uh, okay. Moving on to the next part of the interview, I said we All right, I like get politics. a little bit political. Um, uh, and so there was recently, I, I, we, I won't go into detail explaining it, there was recently a huge scandal at the Romance yes. Writers of America organization, an organization that I know you're very, you're very familiar with. I believe you, you received Yeah, I just, I was, them, I, I received um, uh, the Vivian Stevens Industry Award this year, this last year. Yeah, and, and one thing I'd like to say to, for those listening who might not know, romance writers have been some of the most innovative and creative drivers of new techniques for independent book selling uh, that there are out there. They've, they've played a huge genre fiction more generally. Those, those are the authors who've really sort of, I, I don't know what's the cliche, pushed the envelope or whatever, you know, they've, they've been there at the yeah. forefront. And so uh, for us, and, 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 and the other thing is that, I mean, in particular, they write about romance writers, write about sex, but they also write about love. And these are things. What, that what's more important in the about, world than relationships? Uh, and has deep, deep, yeah, yeah. And so what happened was there was a um, diversity-related scandal at the Romance Writers of America organization. I will put a link in the notes to this or in the transcription of this interview so that people can go down that very deep, you know, to do a very deep dive in that if you want to. And you kind of have to, to understand what happened. But I said I, said I wanted to talk about politics. And it's there's something to me that's always seemed like there's there's something in the there's something about fiction and good fiction and good writing that inherently tends towards what in you know contemporary 
discourse we call liberal mindsets. Um, there's something about being imaginative, just being creative, that is um, different from uh, that. That leads you away from f- just o- o- obedience to prior models that have been passed down to you. And so, although there are many, many, many sort of conservative writers out there, and there are entirely conservative genres, it's always seemed to me that there's been something just like inherently problematic about engaging in writing uh, and trying to be conservative because I mean, to begin with, why are you writing? Who do you think you are? Right. You were talking about that a little bit before Mm -hmm. with the reaction that people have to self-publishing authors. Well, that's true of any writer. Who do you think you are? Didn't Burke just write it all down in his reflections on the revolutions in France? And now we're just here to pass that on to future generations. And, and this spills over into education as well, right? Because you'll see, People say that, you know, what what education should be is about training good. I think Jeff Sessions said this should be about training young people to be good citizens and passing on the wisdom of previous generations. And it's like. If you have a kind of writerly mindset or an, an intellectual mindset, that just doesn't make any sense to you at all. And that's what you kind of exist to to fight against. I at least at least this is I'm sorry, not you, me. And that's how I feel about it. And I, anyway, I just wanted to know, ask you in the context of diversity, is diversity something that like inherently is something that will be defended and promoted by writers? Well, you know, I, I've been thinking about this lately, wa- watching what's happening with RWA and it's really sad what's happening there. Um, You you know I I kind of approached I, I when I started Smashwords eleven years ago I thought you know the average writer is going to be more intellectually advanced, more independent minded than the average person, but um, I, I I'm changing my my views a little bit. Um, you know I think writers. I mean, one thing that writers have that the average person doesn't have is intense passion for their ideas, for their stories, for their knowledge, if they're writing nonfiction. But beyond, beyond you know, the, the passion, which is an incredible quality that I admire, um, writers are pretty much like everyone else you know, beyond that. There are some of us who are very independent minded and will fiercely defend our independence. And then there are others of us who are meeker, milder, willing to be, uh, you know, you know, wanting to, you know, associate ourselves with um, someone who's going to do the work for us or associate ourselves with a, an entity that is, you know, large or big or powerful, or that's going to take care of us. You know, they're different. They're completely different mindsets. Um, You know, as diverse as humanity is diverse. Um, You know, at its core, self-publishing is, it's about diversity. It's about celebrating everyone's contribution enabling the celebration of everyone's contribution. I mean, I believe that everyone has something useful to contribute 
if they want to write a book. But we haven't seen, you know, when we look at like how the indie author movements played out over the last 10, 11 years. And, you know, if you, you know, you read my, my end of year blog post this year, um, my views have gotten pretty dark lately. You know, do indies really have what it takes to move the ship in the right direction? And, you know, I've started having serious, serious doubts about that. You know, when we look at what's happening with RWA, they're grappling with some really big issues, issues of diversity, issues of inclusion. And how do you, how do you celebrate all the different voices in your organization and give everyone a level playing field? And how do you, how do you deal with some of the gross injustices that have been, you know, institutionalized for hundreds of years? There's really difficult questions to grapple with. And so what we're seeing with RWA is they're struggling with the same challenges that the rest of society is struggling with. Um, but like most things that are exposed to social media where, you know, people can write, that's one unique thing here is that RWA, RWA members are really good at expressing themselves and social media makes it really easy to express themselves, which makes it really easy to love something really hard or to hate something really hard or to be angry about something really hard. And I think what we're seeing at, at RWA is that social media combined with writers who are really good at expressing their feelings, that it's kind of a potent combination um, that creates a like really intense energy around these issues at RWA. These are really important issues that R RWA needs to grapple with. And it's, but the, the intensity of it all hitting so hard, um, you know, raises questions. Can, can an organization like that survive? You know, how do you keep your membership happy? How do you serve the diversity of your membership? I mean, I think, I think we would all agree that diversity is wonderful and diversity makes us stronger, not weaker. But how do we get there in a way that serves everybody and that's equitable for everybody? And I don't know what the answers are. Um, you know, I, I'm glad to see the RWA is trying to focus on it. I hope they can pull through it. Time will tell. Yeah, well, thank, yeah, thank, thank you very much for sharing that. I, I, I really didn't frame that frame that well, and you, you sort of uh, managed to give a good response in spite of, in spite of me doing, doing a, a poor job of it. Uh, uh, so the last thing I'd like to ask you, there's a bit of a, a bit, and this is much more lighthearted than many of the things we've spoken about in this podcast, but although, although still serious and consequential, um, whenever I have someone who's an expert on the book publishing industry on the podcast, I like to ask them about Barnes & Noble. Um, so you were talking about steering, writing the ship and, and things like that. Um, so recently there have been, there have been, uh, overdrive, there have been some big changes overdrive, for example, which distributes to libraries and schools was bought yes. by KKR a private equity firm. Uh, and Barnes and Noble was recently bought by another investment firm. Uh, and they brought after years of 
at least from the outside, apparent disarray. Uh, and they finally they brought in a new CEO named James Daunt, who is well known in the industry for having turned around the Waterstones bookstores in the UK. And uh, Barnes and Noble, which yes. I know that Smashers actually has a history with, with respect to ebook distribution and stuff like that. I think you are you might have actually been yeah we we um, we were yeah. the first to bring them into self publishing. Yeah, yeah, that was a great accomplishment, uh, and which I think all self published authors should thank you for accomplishing. Uh, but um, what's your opinion of uh, the prospects for Barnes and Noble uh, weathering the storm and, and being the ship being righted? Um, It, the, their future, if if things continue as they have in the past, over the last 10 years, their future is bleak. Um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that James Daunt can turn things around, um, but they've got a real real challenge ahead of them. And that bit, the biggest part of the challenge is Amazon. Now the, 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 the same challenge that Barnes and Noble faces um, any other pure play bookstore faces as well. So, you know, the other big store of interest to Indies is Kobo. So you've got, you look at Kobo and you look at Barnes and Noble. These are two pure play book retailers they can only survive in the future if they can make a profit selling books. Yet they're competing against a company, Amazon, that doesn't need to make a profit in books. Amazon, you know, part of their business strategy for the last 20 years has been about, you know, basically reinvesting all of your potential profits back into the business so that your profitability is driven down to zero. So you don't have to pay taxes. Um, that's a sensible strategy for someone like Amazon with a long-term business perspective. Um, and it's one of the secrets to their success. But if you're operating Barnes and Noble or Kobo, you can't stay in business if you're not making a profit on selling books. And when you've got um, a company like Amazon that is effectively dumping books on the market at below market cost. That's what they're doing with Kindle Unlimited. Um, how does a how does the bookstore compete against that? You know, a bookstore that's trying to sell single copies of a book. You know, if you can go, you can go subscribe to Kindle Unlimited and you've got, you know, a million and a half reasons never to buy another single book again. So how do they compete against that? It's really difficult. Um, you know, Barnes and Noble's strength is they've got the physical footprint. They can build community around those physical locations. They can do things for readers and for authors that Amazon can't do because they don't have that physical footprint, that physical meeting place, the community that is possible when book lovers come together face to face in a bookstore. So to Barnes and Noble's favor that they've got that as an advantage. Um, but Barnes and Noble, you know, on the print side, they're still, they're very dependent on print. We see what's happening with their ebook sales and it's pretty dismal. You know, their ebook sales are dropping double digits every single year for the last five years. Um, 
their print sales, you know, are completely dependent on traditional publishers. Yet traditional publishers are under a lot of pressure from Amazon. So what happens if some of the large publishers start failing? Or if the consolidation continues and it probably will, what happens when those traditional publishers are doing fewer print books? It, it puts the booksellers in a difficult position. Thanks very much for sharing that answer. It reminds me that um, we could probably record an entirely new feature length podcast interview talking only about uh, mm -hmm. book sales numbers uh, for print and eBooks as well, uh, which is something if you're ever, if you're ever up for a discussion about that, I'm, I'm happy to ask you questions because that's something that I've, I've got a bit of an interest in myself as well. Uh, but we have reached feature length and I wanted to say uh, thank you very much, Mark, for taking the time to do this interview and for being so forthcoming about so many different projects. I was kind of peppering you from all sides with bits from your past and well thank you for these the thought-provoking uh, questions it's uh, you know we've talked about some really important things today thanks very much and thanks as always to all of you for listening to this episode of the front matter podcast if you like what you heard please rate and review it wherever you found it and if you'd like to be a lean pub author please check out our website at leanpub.com thanks <laughs>